Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Well, we're in Genesis chapter 19 this evening as we just read. Genesis chapter number 19. I want to look a little bit more this evening. I kind of finish up where we left off last week on Lot's spiritual decline. Really, uh, the story here that the Scriptures has preserved for us is one that's, I think, really all in the child of God's life uh, to be one that is so terribly sad. Um, one, in fact, that uh, sadly, as you consider it, that many Christians have had an experience in life where they've watched someone, not unlike Lot, but watched someone that was associated with the friend of God, watched someone that was living a life at some point that was bearing fruit. That's always the mark of a believer. If we abide in Him and He abides in us, ye shall bring forth fruit. Uh, and of course, everyone that bringeth forth fruit, He purges them so that they bring forth much fruit, more fruit, and such is the case. And so here's Lot, a man of faith that has a level of fruit bearing in his life. But as you move into chapter 19, it becomes bleak and dark. And I think when you look at the end of Lot, it was not nearly what it could have been. His end could have been one similar to Abraham. I'll speak of this in a moment, but as you see Abraham in chapter number 14... Uh, when they're dividing up, going their separate ways, as it were. Uh, Abraham's in the area of Mamre. Uh, it's mentioned there in chapter number 18. He's in the plains of Mamre, just outside of Hebron. Or Hebron. Uh, Hebron, that ancient city, still exists today. In Hebrew, it means friendship. I think that makes a lot of consideration as you think of Abraham, who is called the friend of God. And he's there in this place of friendship with God. And as we'll see in chapter number 19, the only time really that Abraham's name is mentioned in chapter 19, he looks across the plains and he sees the smoke ascending from Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, Lot there moves to Zoar and then into the mountains. And really, except to the time you get to the New Testament account of Matthew, the Lord's Sermon on the Mountain, or until you get to 2 Peter, you don't hear much of Lot's life. He's certainly not an example of anything a believer should engage in. But nonetheless, he is testified as being a believer. And what a terrible path he went down. He started out in chapter number 13, really in chapter number 12. He's an associate of Abraham as they make the initial move from Ur of the Chaldees. He's associated in Abraham at the beginning of chapter number 13 as well as uh, they return from thence, or I should say go down to Egypt in chapter 13 as they return from Egypt into chapter 14 when they go their separate ways. And it seems as once he's moved in the presence of Abraham, he only goes his separate way. There is really not a great spiritual decision, save perhaps one, that Lot makes from the separation from Abraham until his dwelling in the mountains in the region that will be named after his son grandson, Moab. In fact, the only thing that you could see that you could point to as being something of nobility is in chapter 19 and verse 3 where it talks about him offering unleavened bread to the angels. You know, where did he learn that? Where did he learn that the sacrifices of God would have been engaged in unleavened bread? I mean, this is, I don't know, several hundred years before the law, before the command of God was ever given to the children of Abraham, namely to Jacob, that uh, when they were going to, the descendants of Jacob, as they're about to leave Egypt, that they were to get the Passover lamb. And, and the first mention there of that unleavened bread is present. How did he know to leave out leaven? I think the only real observation that one could have is he learned it from dear old godly uncle. Yet his life was not in keeping with the singular actions that he would make at that time. And I want to continue tonight and just look at, I think in totality, we have 10 different lessons. Now, several of them we covered last week, so I'll move quickly through those. But you could not find two individuals, believers, that are more contrasting than Abraham and Lot. Abraham, as we said, a friend of God. Lot's a man that you barely know that ever had any fruit to be born for God. Abraham's one that walks by faith. Lot is one that walks by sight. In fact, even at the end of his life, he's saved from Sodom. In fact, let me back that up a little bit. I think it's chapter 14 and 15. Uh, there's a great judgment that he's passed. Chapter 14, you got the battle of the kings. Lot's taken captive. 
And Abraham comes in with some of his trained men that are present and they gather together and they defeat the invader and set free all of those kings and that citizen population. And uh, the reality is Lot missed the whole opportunity to leave then. That was a time in which society had come to a place and Lot was in great jeopardy. God's grace was upon him at that moment. And Lot could have made a decision at that time to leave, but he did not. Even when you come to the end of chapter 19 and all of the fire and brimstones about to fall, the angels basically have to kick his behind out of Sodom and Gomorrah. He fights with them and almost as a level of exasperation later in this chapter, you find the angels saying, look, the judgment can't come until you leave. You got to go, you got to go, you got to go, you got to go. And so he goes out and they tell him to go to the mountains. But he didn't want to go to the mountains. He wanted to go to Zoar. That's where he wanted to go. And the angels finally say, well, just get. And he goes there and en route to Zoar. He realizes that might not be the safest place and kind of acquiesces to the request. Here's a man that only walked by sight. Not a man that considered at all the commands of God. Here's a man that allowed greed and worldliness to be his pursuits of life. Here's a man that made home in a very sinful city. Contrasting with generous and holy Abraham that constantly was looking for a city that hath foundations, Hebrews tells us. Here's a man, uh, Abraham that is, that will be esteemed as one that will order those generations that follow him. Abraham will be such a man of genuine faith that, yea, his children and his descendants, yea, even into the time of Christ, the Jews would say, we be of our father Abraham. That cannot be said of Lot. Lot is a descendant of people who are in great infamy. And look at Abraham and Abraham, those Romans chapter 4, speaking about the great justification of Abraham. Abraham would be those that would begat the heirs of all the world. And yet when you consider Lot and his, you find he's lost all of his possessions. His testimony is destroyed and ruined. And he's dwelling in a cave from thence. His children's children, Amnon and Moab, will continually abide. What a sad consideration. Now last week we looked at these, and I'll move quickly through these, just some lessons. And we have ten of them here. But number one, we learn from the lot, life of Lot that a step of faith isn't the same thing as a life of faith. There's a great distinction between one that will come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and one that will abide in Him. They are not the same. Now there would be those that would believe in the preservation, the doctrine, the preservation of the saints, the fifth tenet of the tulip theory. The preservation of the saints does not mean that once saved, always saved. That's why I think believers ought to be very careful about abbreviating the, the teachings of Calvinism and talk about them being a 2.3.4 point. They're interwoven together like a great fabric. To say that you adhere to one is, in the estimation of the theology that Calvin wrote, is embracing to some extent or another all of them. But those that would hold to that fifth, the preservation of the saint, they have in it that truly someone that is saved will not have a life that is defined by unbiblical action. That's why the Calvinist that would hold to the preservation of the saint, it naturally folds into having lordship salvation to be prevalent. And you look at Lot, he's one that was eternally secure, but he's not one that had the preservation of the saint. Why? Well, you don't see saintliness in his life. You see that in the life of Abraham. In fact, you see that in the life of Paul. Paul's one that goes through many trials and tribulations and circumstances, yet he could proclaim quite confidently, I am resolved. He would speak quite boldly uh, that he could know, he could know and reach forth and strive for the prize that is found in Christ. And you don't see the preservation of the saint in some of the New Testament saints. I think of those whose faith was overthrown that uh, are, Paul mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4. You think here of Lot. There is a difference between the step of faith and a life of faith. And Lot's life is one of those. We also looked at this, that uh, a look of longing, a look of longing can often, and maybe we should say will often, alter the path of godliness. Now, there's some things as a child of God we're called to, and one of those is holiness. One of those is righteousness. One of those ought to be with great zeal towards the things of God. Yet we live in a world that's full of temptation. Be careful what you allow your minds and your heart and your eyes to gaze upon. 
A longing look often brings about compromise and sin in the life of any believer. I think of Genesis chapter 3. The first time you'll find that look. And it's the idea of a longing look. More than just a passing glance. It's, it's really a consideration by which the eyes beheld. The first time you'll find it is in Genesis chapter 3. And the scripture said of Eve, And the woman saw. She didn't just see the fruit. She considered the fruit. And she considered that fruit in direct contradiction to what God had previously told her. And friends, so often you and I can come to the place in life where we consider something and we know it's wrong. We know that it does not please God. We know that it does not further our walk, but we'll gaze upon it. You mark that place and remember the lesson of Lot that a look of longing can alter the path of the righteous. We think of Lot in particular, what motivated him to move towards the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah? It was a look. He looked on those plains and he considered. And no doubt Satan with his subtlety uh, considered Lot and said, my, those are the greatest plains. And they're good for all that ails you in the sense of feeding your herds. And you can be prosperous if you just move in that direction. The reality, it was a false narrative. There's always another choice. It's not simply lose everything I've got, as was presented there with the strife between the herdsmen, and go over here and have success. Abraham was left with the choice of being in this area that was somewhat arid. And yet the Lord told him to consider all the land around him that God had given it all to him. And God prospered Abraham. And so the child of God needs to remember that lesson to be learned as well. That faithfulness to God is better than ten thousands of silver and gold. Seems like the psalmist over in the 119th Psalm referenced that. A third lesson is this. It is the fact that a walk with the wicked will produce wicked choices. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33. And really the context is talking about those that did not believe in the resurrection. It goes on to say that if the Lord Jesus be not risen from the dead, we are men most miserable. He went on to say, if I was going to believe, Paul does, he used a little sarcasm in the text. He says, if I was going to believe that there wasn't a resurrection from the dead, he said, surely I would eat, drink, and be merry. I'd live for all that is in this life. But Christ be risen from the dead. And he admonishes of them in verse number 33. He said, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. You want your doctrine to be filed up? Handle around those that deny the truths of the Word of God. It'll make you question its very truths as well. And one might say, nope, that would never happen to me. Uh, then we need to remember later in the book, particularly around chapter number 8, Paul says, let him that standeth take heed lest he fall. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. You hang around with those that do wicked things and it will not be long before you are producing the same fruit that they are in their life. No wonder Psalm 1 tells us not to stand in the seat of the scornful. That the delight of the blessed man is to walk in the law of God and in his law doth he meditate in there and night. Think of Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 6 where he speaks on this, My son, if sinners entice thee, take some character. Oh, if Lot would have had character to trust God. But he was more comfortable around a wicked society and failed to realize the great lesson that you will produce in your life the actions that you make. Number four, here's a fourth lesson. That when uh, an area of life, a standard of life, if you will, is surrendered, problems always arise. So here's this initial movement he's made towards the plains of Sodom, as we read last week. The scripture tells us in chapter 13 and verse 12 that he pitched his tent towards Sodom. Then you come to chapter 14 and verse number 12 and you find out he's an inhabitant of Sodom. And then when you come to chapter 19 and verse 1, you'll find out that he's in the gate at Sodom. And then when you come to chapter 19 and verse number 3, he's accused of being a judge in Sodom. It was not that he just happened to share a post office box with the USPS, uh, the United Sodom Postal Service. That's not what he was saying. And by the way, that was no dig on the postal service. It just happened to go with it, you know. And the fact is, that, that wasn't that he just shared a postal code or a zip code. The fact he had moved from a place 
of gazing, to a place of cohabiting, to a, clay, a, a place of ruling and leading in that society. And I can see every reason why the children of Sodom would have desired for him to sit in the gate. He was a self-made man. He had left a country far gone. He had come into a land that he didn't know. He didn't know the languages, etc. And yet from their, ass, their perspective, uh, from what they could surmise, he has done well for himself and he has prospered and he endured the famine and he went down to Egypt and he came out and now he's got even more wealth. I mean, if any man could tell you how to absorb all the losses of Wall Street and how to endure all the famines and troubles and wars that will come, it was Lot. Lot's one that the whole kingdom's being taken captive. Five of them, they're all captive. And Lot had a friend in high place. Well, here's old Abraham that took of his trained servants and he goes in and they whip a whole nother kingdom. And Lot's free. Tell me that's not influence on display. Tell me that's not prestige for everyone else to engage in. And you think of our society as we prepare to have, even next year, all these elections. It always troubles me, but these candidates are drawn to the fact of telling you all that they've done in life and what they can do and what they will do, etc. And Lot did not have to broadcast it. The entire community knew the power and influence of magnitude and that somehow his uncle Abraham had power, an unreal amount of power in those days to take servants that were trained in his own house and armed and go out and deliver Lot and all that was his and all of his wealth and even the kings beside. Now that's a mighty force to be had. I'd vote for that guy to be my judge. And this is where you see it. Here's a man that surrendered a place in his life and failed to realize the truth that Lot, when he pitched his tent, knew that Sodom was an exceedingly wicked uh, city and chose yet, chose yet to abide there. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul talks about everyone striving for the mastery, striveth. Uh, striveth in vain, if you will. And he said, I fight not as one that beateth the air, but I keep my body under subjection, lest any means I be counted a castaway. That word castaway is the same thing in Romans chapter 1 as a reprobate. He said, lest I just be pitched aside in the sense that God is finished with me. Here's Lot that did not come for a moment. Consider with great understanding the result of his choices would have. And there are many Christians that not unlike Lot, making decisions to surrender things and the per pertaining holiness, pertaining their relationship with God, their fellowship with God, and don't realize that additional problems always arise. Number five, I mentioned this just a moment ago. We learn from the, lot, uh, from the life of Lot that when opportunity to change course arises, run for it. He's in a bad circumstance. He's in a terrible plight. But Sodom was not his first plight. The falling of the brimstone in Sodom and Gomorrah was not the first plight. The first plight, as we've mentioned before, really was chapter 14, the battle of the five kings. And it should have been at that moment that he could recognize God's good grace upon him. Only the child of God sometimes would recognize that one of the first ways in which God deals with his children is often troubling the issues of their life. We like to think of God chastising, and I, I, I'm sad to say this, but many times in, in the Christian life we become so carnally minded that we can't even recognize when God is dealing with us. We're that dense and hard-headed. You read through the scriptures, look how God dealt with Israel. When they sinned, did he immediately slap them around with famine? No. Did he immediately send Nebuchadnezzar and Sennacherib? To build fortifications around and bulwarks around the city and a siege ramp and invade them. Is that exactly how he dealt with them right away? No. God's a gracious God. God's in the business of wooing his children back to a walk with him. But he will trouble their water. You look at the children of Israel and their light was such that as they sinned against God, God provided many, many opportunities. He caused trouble for them in their life. Sometimes that trouble was sickness. Sometimes that trouble was a loss. Sometimes that trouble was greater or lesser. Sometimes it was family. Sometimes it was a, a, a time of, uh, of a lack of rain or provision or not an abundance as it ought to be. And they had many, many, many opportunities in which they could change course. But instead of running after the things of God, they continually ran after the things of the flesh. 
I think how that parallels with you and I's life. Sometimes a Christian begins to set their face towards evil things and make surrendering places in their life and other temptations come and they succumb to them and God often is troubling their life. I'm amazed. Sometimes the trouble in our life is the opportunity God gives us to persevere and to change and be conformed to His image. But sometimes the trouble God allows in your life is to get your attention. By the way, unless you think that's just an Old Testament doctrine, you think of what the Lord told the Corinthian church before they went to break bread. Do you remember? At all manners of fighting inside the assembly, divisions, and He said, for this cause, many are sick. That's a New Testament economy. God allowed a physical, tangible sickness to fall on the lives of believers. Then he goes on and he said, some sleep. Now, that's, that's not the message time sleeping there. That's not the early morning sleeping time. He's talking about the fact that they had a premature death. Yes, God still deals with his children in a similar fashion. I'm not saying again that every sickness is a judgment of God. Sometimes it's the opportunity to persevere and to see God's working in our life. Sometimes it's the opportunity that God has given us to, be, to magnify His glory in the eyes of the lost. But the reality is that I'm relating to you is God often provides an opportunity to change. A carnal-minded man won't run for the hills in pursuit of those things that pleases God. He'll run with greater vigor towards, towards the things that God's going to judge. And such is the lot of life. Life's lot, rather. A lot of L's there. Well, let me move to a sixth one. When anything, especially wealth, becomes supreme in our life, and when you hear the word supreme, just put down this four-letter word, I-D-O-L. We like to think about it that way, but that's what it is. An idol really is anything that takes preeminence over the person of Christ. That's what an idol is. That's why in Exodus chapter 20, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now I know, and be honest with you, I've never really seen a pagan god. Not with my own eyes. I've seen them in books and stuff. I've never lived in a society where they had a Buddha, except for the, the Chinese restaurant might have had one. But I've never seen one in a community that had a big Buddha and, and watched people observe and bow down before it. I've never seen that with my own eyes. I've never been in a country that had that. But that's not to say that our society does not have its graven images, that our society does not have its idols. It's not to say that we sitting here this evening do not at times have idols in our life. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 21, he says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The reality is when anything, especially wealth, is supreme, sorrows will follow. What you love will determine what you do. That's an unmistakable truth of life. If you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, your life will be, uh, be fruitful with many provable evidences that He's your treasure. But when the God of this world is your treasure, your life will be full of many undeniable fruits that this world is your treasure. It's unmistakable. Out of the issues of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Out of the issues of the heart, the mind conceives, and the body will do. No wonder in Proverbs chapter 4 and 23 we're told, Keep thy heart with all diligence. Why? For out of it are the issues of life. You know, we think about wealth. That was so important in our today in society, but it's also so important in the Lot's life. Verse Timothy chapter 6 talks about the love of money being the root of all evil and some having pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I think about the truth that the Lord relayed in His sermon on the mountain in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 18. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. And mammon, if you do a study, mammon really wasn't so much a pagan god as it was the demon ascribed of wealth. <clears throat> Not just in one society, but in many of those polytheistic societies, mammon was the express demon by which wealth was to be had. And God tagged right in on that. Men and women, sometimes we treat money as the end of all things. 
and believing that if we do not have that and do not have it in our possession, then truly we can never be happy in life. That's just not the case. There's been many a rich man whose mind is tormented by the desires of this life. Hollywood and Wall Street are full of individuals that have all the things that heart and, uh, and mind could possibly want on this side, yet inwardly they're dead and there is no peace upon their heart. Twice in the uh, prophet Isaiah's writing, he said, There is no peace to the wicked, saith God. Yet at the same time in the 26th chapter, he speaks of the child of God, and thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed upon thee because he trusteth in thee. From the life of Lot, we note that anything that is supreme will bring additional sorrows. Anything that is made supreme beyond Christ will bring specific sorrows of life. This really brings us here to Genesis chapter 19. And we've read at length the passage of this, and so I want to give you four more. Just from this 19th chapter of the book of Genesis. And really, um, we could look at a fifth one towards the end of the chapter, if time will allow us. But I'll just probably sum that word or that last point up with one singular word. Look at verse 3, if you will. It says, And he pressed upon them greatly. They turned into him, entered into his house, and he made them feast and did bake unleavened bread. And they, these, these, these angels that were sent their way, did eat. I'll give you a seventh lesson from the life of Lot. And that is this. For the believer... There's no such thing as a dual status lifestyle. If you will, it's impossible to have a dual status lifestyle when it comes to your walk with God. Here's a man that recognizes Lot that his city is wicked. Yet here's a man that knew its wickedness by the context of Scripture for six chapters. And yet, when these angels, these messengers of God arises, note how he treats them. He talks about being their servants. He washes their feet. He uh, gives them a place to eat. He makes a feast unto them. He baked unleavened bread. In fact, if you keep reading later down, down, he does his erstwhile to protect them from the harm that was just outside his door. In so much, it nearly cost him his own life to do so. Really, this is about the only positive fruit you see in the life of Lot. He's not known in his community as the friend of God. He's not known in his community as one that loves God exclusively. In fact, I think of Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You don't get that from Lot's life. There's not one citizen of Sodom that would sit there and say that Lot was one that sought with all of his heart to love the Lord God supremely. Rather, you find here a man that in direct contradiction to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1 has set his affections on the things of this life. He's inadequate as a believer in the sense to the fruit he produces, the light that he ought to be, and he's a frustration to the citizens of Sodom. In fact, in this very moment in chapter 19, he manages to do something. Everybody is upset with Lot. He's fussing with the angels. They didn't want to be in his house. That would be a good research study project. Bible said, why didn't the angels want to go in his house? Because there's wickedness in there. They were more comfortable lying in the street. You know, sometimes if I might say this, sometimes it's more comfortable for the child of God to be near some sinners than it is to be close to some carnal believers. Sometimes a lost man, knowing that you're a believer, can have a genuine respect for the decisions you make where a carnally-minded believer just constantly wants to burr up and fight and re-adjudicate the clear commandments of scriptures again and again and again and again. Paul was greatly, listen, let me give you a biblical example. Paul had greater comfort. Paul had a greater conversation with Felix and Festus, who were the regent kings appointed to interrogate him, than he did with the saints at Corinth. You got two lost kings that are in charge of putting their seal that Paul, that is the apostle, was a treasonous citizen of Rome. 
And he had a greater conversation with them than he did the saints at Corinth. It was so bad at the church at Corinth that Paul said, I thank God with the exception of these, I baptized none of you. That doesn't sound like a guy that's really happy about the work that God had done in their life. The reality is in the scriptures, there's no such thing as a successful dual status lifestyle. Now let me put this in direct ecclesiastical terms. You will never be relevant to this world. This worship style today that speaks about being culturally relevant, it's impossible to do. Why? You can't serve two masters. You can't be appreciated and applauded by the people of this world and at the same time reach the approval of a holy God. Lots of lesson of how that attempt will always end in abysmal failure. There's no such thing as a dual status lifestyle. Note, if you will, an eight thing. Drop your eyes down to verse 6 through 9. Lot went out, out at the door unto them and shut the door after them. He said, I pray you, brethren, do not sow wickedness. Verse number 8 is, I just, I mean, Behold, now I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you and do ye to them as it is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing. For therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. And they said, stand back. And they said again, this one fella came in. This is the community talking to Lot. This one fella came in to sojourn. They're talking about Lot. And he will needs be a judge. Now will we deal worse with thee than with them. And they pressed sore upon the man even Lot and came near to break the door, verse number 11, or 10 rather, the men, the messengers of God inside the house, put forth their hand, pulled Lot into the house to them and shut the door and smote them with blindness in verse number 11. Now I think in contrast, here's Lot a judge. Here's Lot a man of esteem. Here's Lot in a house with a door and a sidewalk, if you will, a street inside a fence city. It's all the comforts that comfort could have. And Abraham's dwelling in a tent in the plains of memory. Abraham's not a friend of this world. Lot is the relevant church member. A lot of the community are pleased with him. There's a lesson to be learned here. The lesson is this. It is far better to be isolated and holy as a believer, than be in a compromising society. To be a compromising believer in a wicked society. It's predicated on the tenets. You can't do both. You're going to have to pick the one you're going to do. You'll never, as a child of God, know peace in this world system. You won't, because if you have the indwelling of the Spirit of God, they already hate you. When I speak of isolation, I'm not talking of soul isolation. I'm talking really of a close proximity to the Almighty God. I'm not talking about preaching the gospel to all the world. I'm talking about who you're going to be friends with in this life. It'd be best for you and I to steadfastly plant our tent pegs, as it were, deep in the bedrock of the belief in Christ Jesus and the unadulterated truths that are conveyed than it would be to be liked and fawned over by all the society. This is the lesson that Lot missed. No doubt Lot could look across and think of his old, crazy uncle Abraham. He lives out in the plains, something like a hermit, lives in tents, and there has some abundance, and obviously God's protected him. But think of all that he's missing in life. Think of what he's losing in life. Think of the opportunities. He'll never be king of Sodom. He'll never be a judge in this land. They'll never applaud him. His retirement will just never match what it ought to be. Oh, what a sucker Abraham is. But Abraham never experienced the judgment of God like Lot did. Why? It's far better to be isolated unto the things of God than it is to be involved in a society with great compromise. Listen, this world system, they're not going to give up anything for you. I think some of the young folks that you'll very soon be starting jobs, and I, I mean full-time, life-engaging careers. Let me tell you something. Those folks in the world system, they ain't going to give up anything. 
But if you're going to be their friend, you're going to have to give up everything. Far better to have character and trust and be separated unto God than it is to attempt the compromise that is necessary to be appreciated of the world. There's no middle ground in the world for this. Let me tell you what the Lord said in the 17th chapter of John. They hate them. This world system, it's the Lord's word, hate you. In this world, chapter 16 of John, you'll have tribulation. Those are not words that strike warmness within our heart. Now, I'm not telling you that you should pack up all your bags and rags and move to the backwater country and live in utter isolation. No, in John chapter 16 and 17, the Lord said, I pray not that you take them out of the world. I rather that you protect them while they're in the world. God wants us, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15, to be light shining in this crooked and perverse generation. But if you're going to shine, it isn't by you being closer to the world. It's by you being steadfastly present in the very presence of the Almighty Savior. Abraham and Lot are antithetical to one another here. Lot forgot the wonderful lesson that it's far better to be isolated in the presence of the Savior than it is to be associated through compromise in this world. Surely 2 Corinthians, Come out from among them, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. What hath God with Belial? What hath light with darkness? There's no gray area when it comes to pleasing God. Note a ninth thing. Drop your eyes down to verse 14. This is a travesty, really. There's great judgment that is announced by these angels. And notice, if you will, the Lord's going to uh, judge it. There's been a great cry that is waxing great before the face of the Lord. Verse 13, the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Notice verse 14. And Lot went out and spake unto his son-in-law's sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. Notice the next phrase. What is it? But he seemed as one that mocketh unto his sons-in-laws. By the way, we know the context of the scripture. Lot's wife left. Lot, Lot's wife, and two daughters left. The two daughters that are mentioned in verse number 8. The ones that were in his house. He has at least two more daughters. Notice what it says. He seemed as one that mocked unto his sons. If there's ever a reason for a child of God to be steadfast, unmovable, and to adhere to the truths of the Word of God, those timeless principles and truth is so important because in that day where God is bringing judgment on the life of those that are ungodly before Him, you don't want to be one that seems to be mocking. There's many a grandma and a grandpa. And we'll truly be more grandmas and grandpas that have watched their children make ungodly decisions in life. Listen, don't side with them in ungodliness. Stay true to the Word of God. Well, that's my child and I love them. I promise that when more trouble comes their life, because there will always be more trouble, they need the example of what they ought to do. They need the character. They need, some, they need the Abraham in their life. You know what's amazing about Abraham? He's just over in Hebron, less than 30 miles away. He can see the smokes from the smokestack of Sodom. The scripture mentions this. He was in the region of Hebron before Lot left him. He stays in the region of Hebron after Lot leaves him. In chapter number 20, after Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's there the entire time from chapter 13, uh, well, the little bit chapter 13 into 14, from 14 on through 19, he's in the plains of Mamre outside of Hebron. He never moves. Chapter number 20, he lacks some faith. He goes down to Gerar. That's where he tells that old guy, you know, this is my sister. That all gets corrected from chapter 21 on. He's back in the plains of Mamre. Chapter number 26, Sarah gets buried in the plains of Mamre. They wanted to give him the land. He said, oh no, I'll buy it from you. And Abraham buys the parcel of land. And that's where he dwells. Do you see that? Oh, what a sample that can be of the Christian life. Be steadfast, unmovable, abounding. You don't need to move everywhere. God's pricked our heart about truth. Anchor your soul to it. Yes, the storms are going to come. The rains are going to descend. The floods are going to rise. The wind will beat upon your house. 
The truths of God are yea and yea. You see, the ninth lesson that we observe from the life of Lot is a believer that is comfortable with sin is of no great value for the gospel's sake. I'll say it again, these emergent, relevant churches aren't doing anything for the sake of the gospel. It's just churning out people that have a semblance of salvation that go right back into the world with little to no fruit ever to show for it. Now, I know sometimes as a child of God, that sits on your heart and you think, my, our labors are greater and our numbers might be fewer. Well, that's been the keeping of the New Testament. The keepings of the New Testament in that sense. Paul went through great hardship just to see a little fruit at places. And at the end, when you look at most of Paul's fruits, particularly the church at Ephesus, they had left their first love. This matter of the gospel is an important thing. But you'll not really, don't buy into the failed theology uh, that if the world is more approachable to the church, if the church is more approachable to the world, if they're more comfortable, if we can just really make them happier here, we'll be able to reach more of them for Christ. No, 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 no. They'll just think you're like one that mocked. That's a lesson from the life of Lot. A believer that is comfortable with worldliness and sin in their life is of no great value to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Note a tenth thing, if you will. I have there in my notes, time won't allow me, but 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6. You could even put some of chapter 7 and 8 in there, but he's talking about, once again, purity within the assembly. Notice this last one. I don't really have a singular verse. It really would start with verse number 15. I want you to notice just a few things. The morning arose, the angels hastened Lot. I want you just to observe Lot's actions. The men of Sodom have already tried to kill him once. Had these not been divinely appointed messengers of God that had the strength to yank him out of the doorway, they were planning to do worse to Lot than they were the angels. They pull him out of there, they shut the door, And through divine power, they make them blind. So they couldn't find the door. All right, judgment's already happened. His life has already been threatened once by the neighbors, as it were. I want you to notice. So when the morning arose, the angels hasted Lot. That means they're hurrying him up. He's like trying to get a teenager out of the bed, you know. Hurry, 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 hurry. No sense of time. You know why? His heart's in Sodom. That's what he wants. All that he's poured his life into is about to be burnt up in a very literal sense. Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of this city. Notice his response in verse 16. What is it? He lingered. Now, what does that mean? Waited. You know how much I've invested in this house? My hot rod chariot. My deluxe chariot. My tools and equipment. What's at the center of his heart? Now notice this. He lingered. So what happened? These men, these messengers of God, these angels, laid hold on his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters. If it's... Two angels here. One's got Lot and Mama. The other one's two the girls, got by the hand. They're pulling them out. Notice what he said. All the while they're cautioning him, the Lord being merciful unto him, because he's lingering. Takes two divine messengers to pull him out of the mess he's in. They brought him forth and set him without the city. That's a powerful phrase. They brought him forth. There's resistance to the edge of the city. See, his heart was still lingering. Almost like he's dragging his feet. But wait, there's more. Look at verse 17. And it came to pass when they had brought him forth abroad that he said, Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee. Neither stay thou in all the plains. Escape to the mountains, lest thou be consumed. Now, is that plain enough English for us? 
I've got you out of the city. Go. Don't look back. Put it in fifth gear. Get your behind to the mountains so you're not consumed. Is that clear enough? Look at Lot. Look at verse 18. What's his response? Oh, not so, my Lord. Really? No. I mean, I've got an idea. Verse number 19. Behold, now thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast shewed unto me in saving my life. Not once, but twice. I cannot escape to the mountain. Judgment's about to fall, and he's not willing to leave. When they make him leave, he's not willing to go where they told him to go. So he says, I can't go to the mountain lest some evil take me. Reminds me of these believers that think if, if they are faithful to church, that will somehow impoverish them in life. It costs them so much in life. Lest some evil take me and I die. What's going to happen if he stays in the gates of Sodom? This guy's nuts. Look at the next verse. He's got a plan. Rebels always have a plan. Rebellious lot always got a plan. It's not a good plan. It's not a well-thought plan. It's not a godly plan. It's not a holy plan, just plan, right plan, but it's a plan. Behold now, this city is near to flee unto. You just came from one city that God destroyed. In chapter 14, when it talks about these five kings, one of the kings' name was Bela, also known as Zoar. That's the same reference here. And it's all near this same conglomeration. Rather than me going to the mountain, that's too much. I might trip on a stone. I might fall. There might be raiders. Stones might roll upon me. Let me go to Zar. Let me go there. It is not a little one. Which is interesting, parenthesis, that's what Zor means. A little one. Just a little city. And my soul shall live. And he said unto him, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow this city for the which thou hast spoken. Haste thee and escape thither. Fine, go, go on to Zor. That's what he's telling him. For I cannot do anything till thou become thither. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. The sun risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zor. He goes there. The Lord rained down upon Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire. He overthrew those cities. I'm in verse 25. And all the inhabitants of the cities. But his wife looked back and from behind came a pillar of salt. Abraham sees the devastation of verse 27 and 28. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow and he dwelt in the cities which Lot dwelt. And he overthrew the cities rather in which Lot dwelt. And then you find in verse 30 that he goes up out of Zor and dwells in the mountains for he feared to dwell in Zor. Interesting, isn't it? Won't leave the city. They finally carry him out to the city. Argues with them. They tell him to go to the mountains. He says, well, there's this little place I'd rather go. It's closer. It's more convenient. It's safer. Let me go there. They say, fine, go there. He goes there. He stays some small period of time and then realizes it's more dangerous there and then escapes to the mountain. I wonder if he'd have just went to the mountain the first time when his wife looked back. It's always collateral damage in the choice we make. Here's our tenth thought. The mindset of the carnal always reject the will of God. The mindset of the carnal always. I don't want to leave. I'm willing to go, but I don't want to go there. Let me go here. How about now I go over there? There's a double-mindedness in everything he does. So is the carnal believer. They're double-minded. There's always something that it has the propensity to love. It might be the things of this world. It might be finances and money. It might be prestige and fame. It might be power. It can be different for every individual, but they'll never be content following the will of God because their mindset is always set on things of this earth. We were going to put a bonus one in here. It's the last few verses, and it's simply this. The end of the carnal man will always be Ignomy. That's it. I can't say that the world is ever going to remember all of God's choices, believers. But they always remember the carnal ones. 
they always remember the carnal ones. Think about this for a moment. If we played a little picture game and I told you, said, hey, first thing that pops in your mind when you think David. It may not be the very first thing, but one of the many things you think is what? The world always remembers with ignorance the choices of the, of the carnal believer. It's full of them. They're present. You know, Abraham, a number of things come to mind before you get to Hagar. The same truth is with Isaac. Same truth with Jacob to an extent. Same thing with Solomon. Lot. You always associate with Sodom. What a terrible aspect. The life of Lot. What a terrible choice he made on this path to spiritual decline. Friend, really it's a choice that he had to make. He didn't have to make the choices he made, but he had a choice to make. And so you and I are faced with the same choice. Will I walk after the things of God? Or will I lean to the flesh? There is no middle ground. The end of one is peace with God. The end of the other, ignominy and defeat. And your and my choices will make the great difference in our life. No wonder in Joshua in the 24th chapter, he's passing on, he's an old man. He's preaching his farewell sermon and says, choose you this day whom you will serve. Be gods before the floods, choose you. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Who's going to be first in your life? Let's stand to our feet. Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.